0: Hello everyone, welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and the former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. In today's episode, we discuss climate change and how climate change is impacting the American Blue Economy through Uh, phenomena like warming oceans and ocean acidification, sea level rise, and other effects. And we'll discuss not only the nature of it, but also what we can do about it. To introduce this episode, we are honored to have one of the Congress's biggest blue economy champions, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from the Ocean State, Rhode Island. Senator Whitehouse, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Admiral. Well, all right. First off, I wanted to thank you for your leadership, sir, with Senator Murkowski on the Senate Ocean Caucus. You might remember when I was the acting administrator of NOAA in 2018, you and Senator Murkowski convened and spoke at an Ocean Caucus briefing on the blue economy. And I led that briefing. And you really put the wind in our sails at NOAA to advance our blue economy initiatives, which continue to this day. Can you tell our listeners why you founded the Senate Oceans Caucus with Senator Murkowski about a decade ago? Well, I'm a Rhode
1: Islander, and Rhode Island is the ocean state, and uh, I'm keenly aware of what is happening in Rhode Island as we experience sea level rise and predict far worse sea level rise, and as we watch our historic fisheries moving about and mostly away from us. Um, So I knew that we had big problems uh, offshore in the oceans, and what I saw when I got to the Senate was that there was really almost nobody paying any attention to any of these issues. Uh, There just was not um, a forum for thinking about all the really grave problems that oceans face right now. And Lisa Murkowski has a good deal more coastline than I do up in Alaska, Um, but we share a common concern about What's happening out there in our oceans? And she was a eager and very helpful ally. And we've grown now to I want to say maybe thirty eight members, and it's quite bipartisan. I think there are maybe a few more Democrats than Republicans, but not by much. Um, so it's been uh, by the standards of Senate caucuses, it's been very effective. We've gotten a lot of work done. And a lot of bills passed and a lot of treaties approved.
0: Well, indeed, sir. And I just commend you for that. I was really excited to track all the wonderful work of the Senate Oceans Caucus and being an oceanographer. And like your wife, uh, I definitely am passionate about the topics you've been a champion for. And in fact, speaking of, uh, you have co-sponsored two pieces of bipartisan legislation that will do much to improve our understanding of the ocean and therefore support the American blue economy especially during this time where we're trying to recover uh, economically from the pandemic. Uh, and those two pieces of legislation are the Blue Globe Act that you sponsored with Senator Murkowski, who we were asking to be on a future episode of our American Blue Economy podcast. And then the Ocean Exploration Act with Senator Wicker uh, that we spoke about on the previous edition uh, of the American Blue Economy podcast podcast. And so would you mind telling us a little bit about those two bills and what you hope to accomplish?
1: Yeah, both focus on getting a better understanding of what's going on out in the oceans. Um, Bob Ballard, the scientist who discovered the sunken wreck of the Titanic, um, has often said that we know more about the backside of the moon than we know about the bottom of the sea. And that gives us a lot that we need to learn. And particularly as climate change creates a lot of upheaval in the ocean, fisheries, currents, temperatures, um, sea levels. Um, and we're going to need more and better data and we're going to need it quicker. As you mentioned, my wife is a Marine scientist and, um, If things are stable state, then your data set um, doesn't have to be all that robust in order for you to make meaningful predictions about what's gonna happen. But if there's upheaval, then you need a lot more data and you need it much more quickly in real time to be able to make accurate predictions about what is going to happen. So both of these bills are focused on improving uh, ocean exploration and ocean data and monitoring.
0: Right, such important work, sir. And in fact, uh, right, to be be able to adapt and perform the types of planning and action that we need to take, for action we need to take, we have to be able to predict. Um, You mentioned Bob Ballard. Uh, Interestingly, he was on the most recent episode of our podcast where I had a one-on-one interview with him about his book, uh, his recent memoir. And in fact, you probably know too that he, uh, for a time, uh, he established the Interspace Center at the University of Rhode Island, which NOAA now uh, runs in in collaboration with the URI. And so a big role there of Rhode Island in advancing exploration with his help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My wife and I actually led the um, legislative effort to get that building on the ballot for a ballot initiative and to make sure that the ballot initiative won. Oh, I'm so glad you did. So I feel satisfaction that that Interspace Center is there. It's really the only new building on the entire Bay campus.
0: No, and it's terrific. I've been there and uh, was just thrilled to see the work they're doing. And, and they often are live streaming from our NOAA ship at sea that the video from the remotely operated vehicle uh, out in the deep ocean. Um, in the Inner Space Center. It's just a terrific place. Uh, so good on you there, sir.
1: One of the things that Bob likes to say is that if uh, he would never trust me to hand over the controls to me of the ROVs, but if I was 14 or under, he'd give it to me in a heartbeat because people in that age cohort really know how to manipulate those things. <laughs>
0: That's a fact. I've seen my kids all do that with, uh, we actually have an aerial drone. I'd rather see them get on some ROV controls too. And uh, in fact, I've been on his ship, the Nautilus, where I did get behind the controls. He, he, I guess he yielded for a few minutes to give me a shot. But Well, you're a trained professional, so he had no choice. <laughs> well, I think it had something to do with me being an admiral and him being a commander, I think. <laughs> but uh, sir, in terms of climate change mitigation, uh, the, the bills you mentioned, um, or pardon me, adaptation. The bills you mentioned address that by understanding the ocean, but you've also sponsored a, a wide range of initiatives in, to address climate change mitigation through uh, increasing energy efficiency and reducing our carbon footprint. Uh, would you like to say anything about those?
1: Yeah, I'll mention two. One is passed into law and already being implemented by the United States Navy. It's called the Sea Fuel Act. And it has sent millions of dollars to the Navy for research on uh, alternative fuels to um, help the Navy reduce the carbon footprint that they have. Uh, When you look at, for instance, uh, Naval Station Norfolk, a previous commander uh, of that base said before he stepped down from that position that it probably only has another 20 or 25 years before it gets submerged by sea level rise. You can keep raising the piers all you want, but it's all the community around it that supports the base that is what's vulnerable and, and hard to lift. So, you know, they're seeing real risk. You know, Diego Garcia, the island out in the middle of the Indian Ocean where we have so many communications uh, capabilities, uh, that could go under. So the Navy's taking this quite seriously and they've been very diligent about spending this money on good scientific research. The other one is one we're still working on. It's called the Blue Carbon Bill, and it's to look at ways that we can invest in the oceans in ways that helps defend them from the consequences of of climate change—the you know warming and acidification and all uh, that—but also try to help get them uh, to be uh, part of the solution to climate change. As you know, for instance, you know mangroves have a very important role in cooling the waters that they shade and taking up um, the uh, carbon, um, and they're seen to help with acidification even, although I couldn't explain the science of that to you.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, that's terrific and great to hear about both of those. In fact, uh, on the first one with the Navy base at Norfolk and the Sea Fuel Act, the uh, I've seen that firsthand on the base, and you're right. When uh, it's it's the flooding around the base that prevents the the sailors who have to work there to get get access to the base during those times. And this happens just on a high tide, not 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 in any kind of extreme rain event. So a serious issue. And in fact, I'm going to be meeting next month with the acting uh, undersecretary of the Navy, Ms. Meredith Berger, and we're going to talk about some of these these efforts. And uh, and uh, really really helpful to. Um, share that with us, sir. And blue carbon, the same. Uh, Know about that. Know about kelp and and, um, seagrasses, which also do the same.
1: Seagrass, mangroves. There are a lot of things that we can do to uh, create a healthier ocean and um, start undoing the effects of climate change.
0: Uh, Right on, sir. That's great. And so thank you for all that work you're doing in the Senate to uh, really support our oceans and the recovery of our blue economy, uh, especially with respect to the impacts of climate change. Um, that's about all we have uh, for our time now, uh, Senator Whitehouse. But is there anything final that you wanted to share with us before we go to the, the panel discussion?
1: I just wanted to share that we are very excited in Rhode Island about uh, developing our blue economy. Um, between the Navy research facilities and the Navy base and the Naval War College and our uh, graduate schools of oceanography at URI and at Brown University and our robust aquaculture industry and the fact that people come from all over the world to enjoy the sparkling waters of Narragansett Bay in the summers and our beautiful beaches. Um, The blue economy is a really big deal in Rhode Island and we're looking um, at trying to make sure that we maximize all the co-benefits from all these uh, different groups. Um, and I just will, you know, flag URI and its new president, Mark uh, Parlange, and URI GSO has a new dean, uh, Paula Bentempi, and uh, Jen McCann at Rhode Island Sea Grant and the URI Coastal Resource Center. She covers uh, two offices. And a wonderful guy from Moran Shipping, the uh, logistics company. Um, They've been some of the leaders on this, and I just want to give each of them a little shout out.
0: Well said, sir. All great people. I know Dr. Bontepe personally, and I think she was the right choice at the right time for the Graduate School of Oceanography at URI. Uh, What a great leader. What a great state, the Ocean State, Rhode Island. And Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much for your many contributions to the American blue economy. My pleasure, Admiral.
1: Wonderful to be with you again.
0: And as we have had in prior episodes, we have a superstar lineup for this one. First off, we are delighted to have Dr. Peter Domenical, the Director of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, or HUI. Peter, thanks for joining us. Admiral, thank you so much for having me today. All right. We also have Dr. Jim Riley. He is the former director of the U.S. Geological Survey and was also a NASA astronaut and a U.S. Navy engineering duty officer. Jim, it's so good to reconnect with you, my friend.
2: Yeah, same Admiral, thanks for having me and uh, good to talk to you.
0: Right on. We also have Bob Glazer. He is the chair of the Gulf and Caribbean Fisheries Institute and an associate research scientist with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Bob, thanks for being here. Thanks, good to hear from you, Admiral Gallaudet. And we have Dr. Amy McGovern. She is a professor at Oklahoma University and Director of the National Science Foundation Artificial Intelligent Institute for Trustworthy AI in Weather, Climate, and Coastal Oceanography. Amy, so good to have you here. Thank
3: you. I'm glad to be here, Admiral.
0: All right, and last but definitely not least, we have Ray Gopher. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Tomorrow.io, a super innovative weather and climate services company that will blow you away with what they offer. And he, Ray is also a former F-16 pilot in the Re- Israeli Defense Force, so he knows weather and climate impacts firsthand. Ray, thanks for making time to join us.
4: Thank you so much for having me, team. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here today.
0: Fantastic. What a great lineup. Let's dig in. So Peter Domenico at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, or HUI, uh, just wow, your organization is doing so many good things in the in the area of climate science and uh and ocean science. And uh, why don't you just give us a quick overview about, about who we, the people, and uh, what your mission is. Great, Tim, thank you very much. Yeah, our, um, uh, the
5: Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution consists of 1,000 uh, men and women who are working on uh, advancing ocean science, technology, and marine operations to serve the global good and to address some of the uh, national security uh, uh, concerns concerning the ocean as well. We are uh, the largest independent oceanographic institution in the world, and uh, we're, again, roughly 1,000 a, a people. Uh, we have a, a really large portfolio of people working on, on climate issues, and in particular, this interaction between uh, the oceans and climate change. And uh, simply put, the oceans uh, are the chief regulator of climate on the planet, um, aside from the sun. Uh, The oceans absorb something like 90% of the excess heat that we're getting from uh, the buildup of uh, carbon emissions in the atmosphere. And the oceans have have absorbed about 30% of uh, carbon emissions since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So the oceans are really central to the climate system and uh, we have uh, really a a tremendously broad effort here working on, on climate change and also climate solutions.
0: Well, fantastic mission you have. And I've worked closely with your uh, institution when I was in the Navy. So there's great national security work you're doing, Peter. And uh, forgive me, I made a major faux pas just now and and used the word institute. And I know you're an institution. And I I always (laughs) got a little peeved when people would call my alma mater Scripps Institute of Oceanography when it was really an institution. So whatever. Uh, Good We're all friends, Tim. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. It's all good. Exactly. Well, yes. And, you know, and then we also have Dr. Jim Riley, like you, a geologist. Uh, You were a a paleo uh, climatology and geology expert, Peter and Jim, uh, you overseeing the U.S. Geological Survey. I think many of our listeners would be a bit surprised to know that you had a pretty large climate portfolio. Can you talk a bit about that?
3: yeah
2: thanks tim um and as part of the mission areas that the usgs holds um since 1988 it has also had a strong presence in uh, ecosystems monitoring and characterizing uh, planetary responses uh, to change and that those changes can be everything from local to global as everyone knows Uh, and the big challenge for the usgs is integrating all of that information Um, usgs also operates the landsat series of satellites and uh, if I remember the numbers correctly, the input that we were getting just from the Landsat satellites themselves, currently seven and eight that are on orbit and active, was about seven terabytes of information every day, uh, which is about the same as what NOAA gets in for their uh, National Weather Service satellites um, as well. So there's a huge amount of data that's coming in, which is one of the biggest challenges. How do we incorporate that data and then uh, correlate it across all the various pieces of the ecosystem that is part of our Ecosystems Missionary in the USGS. And so that's that's the enterprise that has the most effect um, uh, associated with climate change. But in addition to uh, that, we also have our Natural natural Hazards uh, Missionary, which looks at some of the, the associated effects that could have a climate change component. And that's everything from from fires to uh, not so much earthquakes, but certainly landslides and other related uh, characteristics that can be dependent on either rainfall, um, ecosystems change across the slope, for example. Uh, all of those things uh, eventually come into play when we look at, at how to to assess the risk from the natural hazards. Combining all those things is where um, the big push was uh, while I was the director there, and that was to turn that into an integrated Uh, science capability where we could uh, apply um, not only cloud-hosted systems for just the size of the data, but also uh, the high-performance computing systems that would allow us to characterize the environments, integrate the information, particularly for Landsat, as we might expect, 42 years of calibrated data is a very powerful tool. And then we would now have a calibrated data set that ties into a number of other sensors, which now gives us that capability to get to that integrated Uh, interpretation of what's actually happening on the surface of the planet, not just in the US, but across the planet. Um, And that would uh, allow us to then apply artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms to it so that we could get near real time capabilities. And so that's the big challenge that's in front of us uh, and in front of the USGS today. Unfortunately, I'm no longer there. But uh, the challenges uh, still remain in terms of uh, being able to take all that information and then get a coherent uh, assessment coming out of it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's just terrific there, Jim. And uh, I'm glad your dog could join in <laughs> just joking, but that, yes, I really enjoyed partnering with you on advancing capability and integrating information, using things like artificial intelligence, which we'll talk about with Amy and, and cloud-based solutions. In fact, uh, and also your expertise with space-based uh, systems. I mean, you having been a, a three-time space shuttle uh, mission astronaut, as well as having conducted five spacewalks, um, I think you know a little bit about space. Yeah, just,
2: just a tad. And then, of course, as you and I both know, the military, of course, we're very strongly interested in how we can characterize an, an environment. And and for the military, it's mostly battle space environment. But for um, it's not really different uh, when you look at the uh, global environments. In terms of how you characterize the same sets of tools, just how you use them.
0: Right, right. Uh, interesting. Well, of all those, uh, the diverse mission set that the USGS has, I was very uh, surprised when I started working with you about, like you said, how many e- ecosystem services and science, how much science you do. I, re- I actually went diving on a U boat off North Carolina, and I uh, I was one of my. Dive buddies was a USGS sturgeon biologist, a marine biologist, and that and Noah has several of those too. And I thought that was just fascinating. But yeah, that's that's just terrific. And actually, on this topic of the ecosystem impacts of climate change, uh, we have a real expert in this field, and that's that's Bob Glazer, and he is uh, he has been a PI or co PI on a number of studies, mostly focused on the Caribbean and Florida. Um, so Bob, can you share a little bit about what you've learned and how, how climate has impacted not only uh, fisheries and ecosystems, but um, but other elements of your where you live, even in
6: Florida? Sure, thanks, Admiral. Uh, in my capacity uh, with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, we've actually been looking at a lot of the science and trying to understand what it means in terms of future scenarios and and applying adaptation principles. So we've been developing adaptation um, approaches that can help us uh, ensure that we can still meet the mission of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. Um, And this is in both terrestrial and marine environments. Uh, They share a lot of commonalities. uh, And so a lot of these adaptation principles and adaptation actions actually will carry across. Uh, One thing that we are laser focused on is the fact that it is not just climate that is uh, leading to all these changes, but there are a lot of other drivers and they're sort of functioning underneath this umbrella of climate. So we have to be sensitive to uh, different different ecosystem effects that are coming from, for example, development or population changes or the political uh, environment under which we operate. Uh, We've carried a lot of this over into the Caribbean with the Gulf and Caribbean Fisheries Institute in some of our initiatives, uh, which include our Fisheries for Fishers initiative in which we are empowering uh, fishers Um, artisanal fishers and trying to ensure that they have the capacity internally and that they are also um, resilient to the effects of climate change. And in fact, these are some uh, really champion fishers who recognize that climate is changing. Of course, they're the ones who see it every day and they are um, very eager to understand what it means for them and their communities uh, in the long run. So they're, they're on top of this. And this is also part of our activities under our MPA Connect network, which is a network of MPAs throughout the Caribbean. Um, And these uh, individuals also are on the front lines and are seeing changes every day. So when we're combining uh, a number of these initiatives together, we can really um, start to develop synergies towards uh, developing internal capacity and resilience for these communities.
0: Well done there, Bob. I'm really excited to hear Talk about adaptation and actually responding and doing something about these changes, and uh, and and I saw that too when I worked with NOAA. Our fisheries had a leading role nationally in adaptation work, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a little bit more about that in detail. But um, one of the I think most kind of near term uh, solutions for adaptation is better weather forecasting. And that leads me to uh, Ray Goffer at Tomorrow.io. Ray, you uh, have, uh, your company does some really terrific things. Can you talk to us about that in in terms of the the prediction element of climate resiliency?
4: Sure. Um, So in a nutshell, what we do at Tomorrow.io is providing what we call weather intelligence, which is eventually the ability of individuals, businesses, and governments to better handle the weather and climate related challenges by providing them operational uh, decision support. So translating this really complicated, you know, multifaceted data set that is weather and climate into bite-sized decision suggestions, recommendations for any type of application, any use case, any individual around the globe that can be a farmer in Africa, it can be a dispatcher in an airline here in the US and anything in between. When we think of, you know, climate change, eventually, Um, climate change manifests itself on a daily basis in weather events, right? Climate is the long-term averages, weather is what happens now and and tomorrow. And so what we're trying to do is help organizations really be prepared because unfortunately, many of uh, those changes are already inevitable. We're in the consequences era. So we need to be much better at reacting to them, being proactive about them. I'll give maybe two quick examples. Um, One is a customer of ours in in India that is a Power Utility, Uh, and they operate a huge portion of the power grid in India. And they are using us, uh, basically started using us for really few days before Hurricane Amphan hit the subcontinent last year. And our software enabled them to pre-position their crews in the right places next to the right poles before they got hit and really be there on time to make sure that they do not collapse and create a massive outage for tens of millions of people. So this is one example. The other example I'll give is actually related to the work we're doing in Africa, where uh, most people, I guess, don't know, but there is a massive locust crisis that is also the result of climate events. There is just more intense precipitation that leads to uh, locust swarms increasing in size and in frequency. And so, what we're doing there is we're working with local farmers and support organizations to understand ahead of time where those locusts are going to hatch where they're going to migrate based on wind humidity precipitation patterns and translate that into actions for local support organizations for farmers you can cover your crops you can move your herds, etc so that you don't get impacted so two very different examples different users but the theme is the same, we need to be proactive in order to um, save money, save lives, and improve our uh, ability to cope with uh, with climate. Well,
0: those are great examples, Ray. In fact, if anybody's interested, I published a piece in the Washington Post on July 9th. The headline was Extreme Weather Requires Private-Public-Sector Partnerships. And I, I talk about some of Ray's examples as well, uh, but really, really uh, powerful stories there. And, and now, interestingly, I know that you, uh, s- some of your decision support, your weather intelligence is fueled by artificial intelligence algorithms. And that's where I, I want to bring in Dr. Amy McGovern at the at Oklahoma University. And Amy, you and I work together on the origins of this AI center. Tell us about your AI center and what it's doing with respect to weather, climate and coastal oceanography.
3: Yes, I'm glad to, to share. We are Developing trustworthy AI, as you said in the beginning when you introduced our center name, it's right in our name. Our focus is not just developing novel AI and machine learning methods, but developing them such that we are sure that our end users will actually trust them and use them. And so, as such, we have a cycle where we are doing foundational AI research you know, trying to find the new methods. And and then we're working hand in hand with atmospheric scientists and ocean scientists to look at the application areas and then also with social scientists. And the social scientists are telling us what our end users actually think of our AI and whether or not it's trusted and what needs to be adjusted, why they might not trust it, especially in a crisis situation, which is something that really matters. We want this AI to help improve our resiliency to climate change and to help improve our weather forecast for a variety of weather extremes but we need it to actually be used, whatever we're developing.
0: So, yeah. So Amy, I think a lot of people jump into the AI discussion without really understanding what it is and or why it's it's important uh, compared to conventional methods. Could you uh, elucidate that a bit?
3: The explanation of what AI is?
0: Yeah. And why why are you, you applying them to weather forecasting, for example?
3: Well, so the, the AI answer, and AI in the media is often used to mean primarily machine learning, although they are, if I drew a Venn diagram, they overlap. But AI is intelligent methods to to, to solve large problems. The machine learning is generally adaptive methods. Um, what we're able to do with our AI methods that the humans right now can't do is sort through this very large amount of data that we're talking about. I know Ray was mentioning, um, you know, the, the data that his company's collecting. There is so much data, there's so many new satellites, there's so many different sensors, there's crowdsourced data that's all available and it's overwhelming to the humans. And so AI can enable us to find patterns in these really, really large data sets and enable the human forecasters to actually just really focus in on an area. So they could sift through the terabytes and petabytes of data that's coming in at any given time and highlight what's most important. Um, and, and that really, it, it, we, I want to make a point when I'm talking about this, when we first started talking about AI for weather and, and, and climate, people thought we were trying to replace the humans. We're not trying to replace the human experts. We're trying to create an AI that helps the human experts do their jobs better.
0: Right. That's, that, I love that. And it, it's, uh, and I love your passion too, Amy. Uh, you've always had that from the day I met you a few years ago. And, and that's interesting and very much related to AI, uh, robotics, and I think, uh, going back to Dr. Peter Domenical at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, uh, you have uh, the, one of the nation's leading facilities in marine robotics, I think, in this National Deep Submergence Laboratory. Uh, how, are you, how are you using some of your submersibles and vehicles to study the ocean and potentially unlock some secrets r- regarding uh, the changing climate?
5: Right, Tim. Uh, you know, One of the things that uh, is most um, uh, noteworthy to me is that uh, so much of the way that we were doing oceanography ten, even 10 or 20 years ago uh, re- relied on the use of individual ships to lead individual expeditions to point places in the ocean for a limited amount of time. Um, our development of robotics at the Woods Hole Oceanographic, but really um, across the uh, other international leaders in this area as well, have really just completely transformed The way we do oceanography. Um, As I speak, we have 4,000 autonomous robots around the global ocean uh, monitoring ocean temperature and nutrients and oxygen level and chlorophyll, um, uh, really just taking daily temperatures of the ocean globally. Um, So we now have not only maps of surface temperature that are monitored by autonomous vehicles, but also maps of the subsurface going back, uh, going down to over a mile and a half, mile and a half in the water column. So um, what this is revealing to us is that it gives us the spatial and temporal coverage that really wouldn't be accessible from, uh, from uh, ships alone. And so it provides this really comprehensive four-dimensional picture of how the planet is changing um, in near real time. For example, you can download data from this one particular fleet called the uh, Argo network, the Ar uh, ARGO network. Um, you can actually download data to your phone in real time. Um, that's just one example of a, a relatively uh, simple-minded robot, if you will, that just pogo sticks up and down uh, from the surface to about a mile and a half water depth. Uh, we also uh, developed um, Curious robots here, which are actually much more um, uh, capable in that they use AI and machine learning to actually understand ecosystems based on what they observe and they and their ability to observe uh, different. Um, kinds of organisms as a community, as an assemblage and say, okay, this community makes sense. It looks like what I've seen elsewhere. Now let me look somewhere else. I'll I'll drive myself somewhere else to look for something different. And that sense of inherent curiosity is uh, one of the -the state-of-the-art developments that we're doing now. Um, Where we're headed in the near future is actually developing an entire network of these um, autonomous, curious uh, robots to really probe the, the, the depths of the ocean. And um, it's, it's apparent to any person living on land that you know, our, our interaction with the ocean is pretty much looking at it from the shore and just seeing the surface. Um, all of the action in the ocean, all of the stuff we care about in terms of the ocean's ability to regulate climate, um, it comes from the depths of the ocean, comes from really the, the whole ocean function in uh, its regulation of heat and carbon. And uh, that's really where I think uh, robotics can really take off, is that informing this otherwise hidden part of the
0: ocean. Absolutely. In fact, NOAA rapidly expanded its use of uh, robots, gliders, drones. And we were really piggybacking off a lot of the great work HUI has done. And it was, it was really a lot of fun to lead that effort uh, over the last few years. And so interestingly, talking about the ocean going deep with these robots to understand um, the nature of some of these changes... Uh, and, and by the way, hitting a blue economy theme, you know, the, the, there's so many aspects of, for example, fisheries management that require this kind of information. But um, kind of jumping back up to a higher altitude with Jim Riley, a former USGS director and an uh, astronaut. And so uh, I'm, I'm excited as I've seen this whole robotic revolution uh, happening uh, regarding oceanography and science. Um, I'm also seeing the same thing in commercial space activities and I think, you know, you've been tracking that and involved with that. Uh, can you comment about the advances in, in commercial space capabilities uh, for studying the planet, Jim?
2: Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, and as you just mentioned, the commercial space is exploding right now. Um, we have a number of players, uh, literally hundreds of companies that are entering the market these days um, that are getting involved in everything from uh, uh, to point-to-point communications um, to putting people in space that can literally buy a ticket and uh, spend a couple days on orbit now. Uh, So the revolution is already here in terms of how commercial space is contributing to government space. And that is one of the challenges that we were trying to meet at the USGS is how do we incorporate all of that information that's now becoming available? And even more critically, how do you calibrate it and validate it so that you now have a, um, database of uh, availability, and and that is if you have a tool that's, say, operated by Planet uh, that you can combine with your Landsat and Sentinel data, you now have a a force multiplier, as we would call it in the military, where you get this uh, information that now gives you a breadth and a depth, uh, uh, echoing what uh, Peter was saying just a minute ago. Um, that we can now get a three to four D characterization of the environment and the changes that are taking place. And with the look back that we have with Landsat, for example, we have 42 years of of calibrated information. So literally you can get a temporal resolution of change at any point on the planet, looking back 42 years. And with this expansion that's now coming into play with the commercial sector in civil space, We now have the ability to characterize at even greater depth at finer resolutions and even better temporal access than we've ever had before. And some of the tools that are really exciting that are coming online are some of the hyperspectral characteristics where we can take bands uh, of very specific and relatively tight um, spectra and start characterizing very specific things in the environment. So if you want to look at just as one example, if you wanted to look at hardwoods in uh, say the Northwest. Um, with multispectral, you can characterize the presence of the forest and to some degree, the hardwoods, but with hyperspectral, because you have so many different bands and the bands refer to the, the width of the light, if you want to think of it that way, that you can slice. How narrow can you slice these bands? And in hyperspectral, you now have the ability to slice it fine enough. You can not only look at the hardwoods, you can look at, look at different species within the hardwoods and start characterizing what's happening with, with the different species within a forest as just one example. But you can do that across the board, and I want to echo a comment that was made earlier. One of the critical things that we need to be able to characterize and bring into the mix um, even more than we do today is the meteorological information. And so that's also showing up in the private sector, as Ray has mentioned, and his company provides Um, we need to be able to calibrate that information, combine it with the NOAA information so that we can get a good characterization of precipitation rates is just one example. Because water, as you know, is a critical resource in the West. Being able to characterize and quantitatively assess what's actually happening at a finer scale within the Western watershed is of critical importance to the water managers across the entire Western uh, series of states, beginning with uh, Arizona and California, which are directly re- responding to how much water is going into Lake Mead and Powell, as uh, you probably remember, just within the last few weeks, Lake Lake Mead has actually hit a critical uh, low point, uh, indicating that there's very likely going to be some mandatory conservation measures that uh, take place. Being able to characterize and then even more critically uh, forecast what's going to happen within the next Um, within the next season, but really we'd like to get out to a decadal forecast capability requires that we have that high precision data set and echoing what Amy is saying, being able now to take AI, handle these very large data sets, characterize the past and look into the future with it and then do some pattern matching on what we're seeing and hopefully over time get a much better uh, ability to characterize two, three, four years out so that we can give Water resource managers in the West for just one example, a better ability to anticipate what they're going to have to see next year and the year after.
0: Exactly. And, and well said, Jim. You know, this prediction problem is critical at, at, at multiple scales, whether it be hourly, uh, like the big rain event that we had on the uh, East Coast, which actually flooded my neighborhood and basement. And so if people don't think there's some uh, sea level rise occurring. They just need to come over to my house and look at look at the uh, the mud I'm cleaning out of my uh, my garage. But ultimately, uh, you you touched on something terrific, Jim. I mean, this is this is big blue economy implications. I mean, water alone, uh, with respect to irrigation for agriculture and power generation in the West, um, it's, it's, and then there's a there's also a fishery component for all the fish that. That uh, migrate upstream, salmon, for example, and so there's a water management's big, and, and that predictive component's essential, and improving that prediction is, is key. And so going back to Ray at TomorrowIO, uh, and and space and commercial space, uh, they have some really really terrific developments on on tap in the next two years. Can you talk about this a new space component of your company, Ray?
4: Yeah, of course. Uh, so we are building um, the first. Ever constellation of uh, weather radars, so think basically uh, your standard radar, just mounted on a satellite and orbiting uh, from about 500 kilometers, so providing global coverage. And the idea behind it was, as as mentioned before by Jim and others, we lack tremendous amount of observations today to fill in that the water cycle picture at a global scale because radars on the ground are extremely expensive, complicated to operate. So we only have them covering a fraction of the globe. And of course, we would never be able to cover the oceans with them. Um, and um, we are basically looking at this as a massive blocker for enabling many applications from water management, improving numerical weather models, uh, improving tropical cyclone forecasting, flood predictions, etc. And when we started the journey, you know, the, the general notion was that radars in orbit, yes, they can be done. NASA actually uh, built a few of these, I think two um, that we can name TREM and GPM, but these were billion dollar spacecraft that uh, from LEO provide revisit rates of roughly every three days or so. And if you want to get the data in refresh rates of say one hour or, or close to that, uh, you need to have many, many satellites orbiting in LEO. And that is one of the biggest advancements we're offering is basically miniaturizing those radar instruments into something that can fit in a very small satellite, some hundred kilograms. And that enables us to build many of them with a very reasonable price point and deploy them to cover the entire globe. And when you think about the impact, you know, we, we always look at it from the problem perspective, not the technology side. There are over 5 billion people today that live outside of radar coverage. If you think of, you know, Latin America, Africa, most of Asia, et cetera. This is a huge amount of people, communities that are dramatically impacted by weather but have very limited access to high-quality weather information today. And we believe that this constellation, which, by the way, can do a bunch of other stuff I'll talk about maybe later, uh, is really going to... um, change that. And it's one of the biggest advancements we can offer to move the needle at a global scale for the entire weather and climate uh, enterprise.
0: Yes. And very impressive, Ray. I mean, when you really think about that, for our listeners, LEO is low Earth orbit. That's what this constellation will fly in. And GPM is Global Precipitation Monitoring. But there's also the fact that these radars will measure sea surface height which is a key input to ocean circulation models and and, uh, also will help us better uh, assess to a high resolution and revisit rate of sea level rise. So this is remarkable what this company is doing, and I appreciate your presentation. And in a similar way, uh, Amy McGovern at Oklahoma University and your Artificial Intelligence Institute you are partnering. You are also engaged with some public-private partnerships. So, who are the companies involved uh, with your institute that are working uh, to advance the application of AI for the environment, the environmental science?
3: We have a number of private companies that are involved with us. Um, we started with four: um, Google, uh, IBM, slash the Weather Company, Disaster Tech, and NVIDIA. And then we've added since a variety of private industry partners as well. So Radiant Earth, Vaisala and Park. And then we did talk to Ray, hopefully they will eventually become partners as well. Um, each one of the different partners has different foci that they're, you know, I it's, mean, it's very much what they're looking at, right? Um, we, for example, with Vaisala have been talking about what we can do with their lightning data, their global lightning data to improve the weather forecasts. Um, I think if we could end up partnering with tomorrow.io, we could do something similar because I think that data, when, when the satellites are up, are going to be incredibly valuable in helping um, with the now casting. But there's going to be so much data you really need AI to be able to process it.
0: Right, right. And uh, but exciting. You know, if uh, one of my themes I try to harp on during my episodes is that uh, the blue economy, as well as uh, environmental science, is really a team sport, and so it involves academia, like with you, Amy, uh, institutions like Peter Domenicals at Woods Hole, and uh, the private sector, like Ray. It's just great to see this kind of teaming, and, of course, the government, formerly what Jim Riley was with, with USGS. And going back to Dr. Domenical at Woods Hole, um, another great example of a partnership is something I paid a lot of attention to. And you have a what they call a NOAA Cooperative Institute that you're a part of for ocean exploration, and in the previous episode, uh, we chatted about that. And the one before that, I actually had a one-on-one interview with Bob Ballard, who is one of your uh, formerly a tenured professor at Woods Hole and famous for discovering the Titanic. But this, this Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute is, I think, a great example of partnerships um, put into play there, uh, Peter. And uh, could you talk a bit about that and, and how um, that's also unlocking secrets about uh, our changing ocean?
5: Right, so the the Cooperative Institute with NOAA is uh, a really uh, vitally important collaboration uh, that um, activates much of the research that we have here on campus uh, and really gives us an opportunity to work uh, more closely with our scientists and to engage on really tough problems that require uh, collaboration. For example, uh, focusing on sea level rise or focusing on the changing surface ocean and it's really this combination of, uh, of partnerships, uh, really bringing able being able to bring together teams, not only within the oceanographic, but really uh, with other groups as well and across NOAA. So I think this is one of the ways in which we, um, I think can really multiply the amazing talent that we have here at the Woods Hole Oceanographic uh, with other leaders, um, both within uh, government agencies such as NOAA, but um, really we're, we're seeking now to uh, increase our partnerships even with uh, within the private sector, within uh, corporations as well. So one of the ways that we can um, really enhance the, the kinds of problems we can pursue uh, and uh, is by uh, building these partnerships. Uh, indeed, you know I think probably everyone on this call would say that you know all of these problems, these environmental challenges that underpin the, the blue economy, They're far bigger than any one institution, and so this cooperative institute, this cooperative approach is really um, essential to, to what we're doing.
0: Right on. Exactly. And it's like a, like Jim Riley had mentioned, a force multiplier, if you will, and, and using Navy speak, but uh, you also, you also have a new center for ocean and climate, the Francis E. Fowler, the Force Center. Could you also just talk about the mission of that new entity? Yeah, Tim, I'd be happy to talk about that. That was actually one of the
5: uh, 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 signature accomplishments of, uh, of our team uh, early on uh, last year. Um, we had a discussion with uh, Francis Fowler uh, about the creation of this center and and really the opportunity that we uh, discussed with him and and with our staff was this uh, really explicit recognition that uh, the relationship between the changing ocean and changing climate is is really uh, essential and that building uh, a, uh, a center that focuses on these classes of questions uh, is central to a place like the Woods Hole Oceanographic. I mean, we have just dozens upon dozens of scientists and uh, equal numbers of engineers and technicians who work on issues that are really central to uh, observing, monitoring, and indeed uh, forecasting uh, the, the climate change signals ahead and how we can adapt and, and mitigate them. And so a, a big focus of our work uh, in this center is actually going to be um, mobilizing our staff to work on uh, what are these classic um, complex multidisciplinary problems that span across disciplines. And so just to to give you an example of one of the things that we're working on right now is uh, we're we're exploring something that we're calling the uh, Ocean Vital Signs Network that would be a a cube in the ocean that's roughly a thousand kilometers on a side, a million square kilometers over the full depth of the ocean, and the idea is to understand how the ocean functions at scale. Uh, in terms of ocean health, uh, carbon uh, flux to the, to the deep ocean, uh, because you know, the oceans are in transition right now and our ability to observe what's happening below is really limited as we were talking about earlier. And so uh, we're, we're uh, wanting to conduct a, a really full investigation by applying our, our talent to, to uh, work on these really hard problems. And you know, this is a, a pretty major uh, commitment on the, on the part of the institution to get our scientists and our engineers, our technicians, our data scientists to work together to conceive of um, a system, a communication system, a, a, an interconnected Internet of Things really for the oceans uh, that give us this kind of three-dimensional over time, so a four-dimensional picture of what's happening in the ocean at scale at a time when this
0: ocean planet is in transition. That's just fantastic, Peter. I love your vision and it's just been exciting to see you take Hui in new directions. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, going back to Jim Riley, formerly with the USGS, uh, he wouldn't have thought of this either, but a big ocean health uh, issue right now are coral reefs. The coral reefs are definitely being challenged with acidification and the warming and, and bleaching and the effects of development. And so something Jim and I worked on was, we are both part of the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force, and uh, definitely, I was—I was actually a co-chair of that task force, and it was probably one of the coolest job titles you could have. But uh, we both were together scuba diving in the Republic of Palau during, uh, in between meetings of the task force, to advance uh, the coral reef health of the coral reefs around the country and in our territories. And I just wanted to, you know, kind of from a real, like, kind of sort of uh, boots on the ground. Um, uh example Jim what what did what was usgs's role in in uh, coral reef monitoring and um, health so um,
2: thanks Tim so the actually that was a lot of fun diving uh, on the reefs there in Palau um, I was impressed by a couple of things just to take a little sidebar um, the uh, reef that we were on as you recall had been totally destroyed in a in a typhoon uh, just a few years before we were out there and so NOAA and the the local universities, as well as USGS, were looking at, at reef recovery. Uh, and it was pretty remarkable how quickly uh, some of the uh, species of, of coral on the reef were recovering, others not quite so much, which um, which was kind of interesting from the standpoint of how precise can we look at the, the information. Of course, on that one reef, we have one really um, well-studied uh, small patch, if you will, of the reef. But getting to where we have a, a resolution large enough to see what's happening on a global scale—that's uh, a much different problem um, and one that we need to look at in the in the whole. And going back to uh, as we were talking about with with the overhead assets and what what the communities are doing now, when you think about what's happening in the reefs, as you mentioned, Tim, it's a very complex set of problems, and and depending on where they are and the conditions around them. Um, It will depend on what's happening specifically to the reef, the drivers, and then characterizing those drivers so that we can increase the health of the reef is obviously where we want to go. You and I were talking about the ridges to reefs and and everything from runoff um, from some of the island island soils into the reefs were, were a big impactor, and that was one that was being studied in Hawaii. Others are changes in the chemistry, uh, changes in the temperatures, um, and there are obviously some other drivers we don't even know yet on what's uh, impacting the reefs. So we need to have a, a better holistic view of what's actually happening, which gets from, from uh, the high altitude characterization all the way down to what you and I were seeing, where people are looking at the specific species within a very small patch of the coral. This really gets back to something that the, the team here has been talking about, which really gets into how well can we characterize these changes. And that really gets into how, how, um, how good uh, is our resolution. And resolution, as you know, really falls into four, four places. Spatial, which is how small can we see? Spectral, we talked about that a minute ago, how many colors. And the colors are one of the things that we use for reef health by looking at them from, from overhead. And then temporal, how often can we see it? How often can we sample it and measure the change between uh, data points? And that affects that, that's an effect that can happen where you and I were as divers, but also uh, how often can we see it uh, with a satellite system going overhead? Landsat, it was uh, as much as 16 days between passes because of the way the system flies. But when you have um, other systems up there, which there are now hundreds of them, Well, you might have, as Ray mentioned, temporal resolution of minutes to just a couple of days. Well, that now gives you a data set that really is is quite useful. Uh, And then the last one is radiometric. How bright does something have to be before we see it? And that's all about the aperture on the the system. And uh, there's some things that we can do with that. But um, as you stack all this information together you now have a data set that gives you pretty good resolution in those four areas. And the last one really echoes what Peter was mentioning earlier and sort of the 4D uh, characterization. Um, In addition to those four, we have the geolocation precision. You know, how well can we stack all this information uh, so that we can now do the uh, cloud-hosted systems analyses um, on the data set that we would have, say, on that patch of reef in Palau, looking at it from over there. Um, having those five characteristics are really important so that we can now get a much better holistic uh, view on it. And the critical thing there, going back to Landsat, which I mentioned earlier, is how do we calibrate and validate that information across all these different platforms? That I see is one of the big challenges um, in front of us in terms of developing these data sets is how do we make it so that we're looking one-to-one between all these different components? And that's one of the technical challenges in front of us. It's uh, one that uh, a lot of people are working on, and so I expect we'll see some really amazing, uh, amazing results come out of that here before long.
0: Indeed. Really well said. Also, Jim, and, uh, you know, so kind of the, the issue of characterizing and predicting the environment is key. Uh, key for what? And why is that important? Well, it's going to help us better adapt and manage. And I think someone who could talk really well to this with respect to fisheries is Bob Glazer. And in fact, I know you performed some studies, for example, you mentioned about helping commercial fisheries adapt. Um, so give us a specific example of like this in your studies, what you shared with and recommended a given commercial fishery in Florida uh, to respond to something like sea level rise.
6: Well, I think it's important, Tim, that uh, we recognize that there's not only going to be losers in terms of um, climate change. For example, we're looking at here in the Florida Keys, uh, what sea level rise might mean for a variety of sentinel species, one of those being the spiny lobster, And uh, for those of you who are familiar with Florida Bay, for example, it is comprised of a number of uh, isolated um, polygons that are essentially uh, basins, and they're emergent around their margins. And right now, those basins, because they are emergent, um, become hypersaline and extremely warm in the summer. Thus, any kind of larvae that Uh, try to get into those areas are are restricted because of those um, emergent uh, um, basins. But under sea level rise, those actually may overwash and thus provide habitat where none was available previously for, for example, spiny lobster. So there could be winners in this whole uh, scenario. One, um, but we, we usually what we do is we take the information that is produced by the likes of everybody on this panel uh, and sort of try to reduce the uncertainty that's associated with future scenarios. And uh, there's a lot of good information that's coming out that's allowing us to really hone in on what a future um, might look like. And for example, in Mexico uh, around Ish-Kalak, um we were examining what the effects of climate change might be on the local uh, fisheries down there for lobster and for our queen conch. And when you start looking at uh, some of the effects, which could be everything from changes in precipitation and therefore runoff to uh, sea level rise to warming temperatures, it becomes a fairly complex issue on, uh, especially when you throw in the um, economic component. So what we've, um, what we're able to do is sort of say uh, this type of a runoff scenario, you know, the, um, the, Visibility may be poor, thus restricting the ability of these communities to fish in the way that they normally do. And in this way, we can then make recommendations on the governance processes that are in place to ensure that they are flexible enough to allow regulations to change, thus addressing the um, sustainability of those communities. So these are the types of issues and uh, the types of information, the data that comes from your panelists and their colleagues, is exactly what we need to reduce the uncertainty to be able to help facilitate these communities to uh, sustain themselves in the long run.
0: Well, that is just a blue economy good news story there, Bob. Thank you so much. And I love where the conversation is going. I wish we had all day, uh, and unfortunately we don't, but I would like to bring all of you back sometime uh, one-on-one for uh, more on on all of these great topics. I'm going to actually give the last word to Ray Gopher uh, of Tomorrow.io, because uh, we had a discussion earlier about President Biden's commitment at the UN General Assembly. And uh, Ray's team has a really remarkable vision about how we can help uh, the rest of the world, uh, which uh, President Biden committed to in adapting to climate change. Uh, Ray, what is your vision and what what do you hope to achieve?
4: Thanks, Tim. Uh, Really an honor to to conclude this incredible discussion. when we think about, you know, the the ability of uh, the rest of the world and particularly low income communities and countries all over the world to deal with uh, the impacts of climate change, a huge piece of that is is really their uh, what's called hydromet hydrometeorological infrastructure, right? Their sensing networks, their modeling capacity, their ability to disseminate critical weather and climate information to Uh, their communities in timely fashion. And if you looked at a map globally of any one of these components, say weather stations or where high resolution models are being operated, you would see very strong correlation of that to uh, the wealth of a nation, meaning wealthy countries have it, uh, less wealthy countries do not have it. And that's a huge failure because typically if you live in a low income country or low income community, you're in much more dire need for for this kind of information. You're much more exposed. And so our vision in short is we want to use uh, technology and different approaches, different business approaches and collaboration approaches with governments to close that gap really quickly. So our satellite constellation is a piece of that enabling to close massive observational gap globally at once. Uh, It's not the entire uh solution it's a piece of it running numerical water uh models on the cloud is another piece of it but i think the most important piece is working in collaboration with local government local med agencies local ngos and really making sure that they um, put their hands on these solutions and they have access to it and they can uh scale and use it over time not just kind of a one-off project but something that really is sustainable for the long term. And that's what we're, we're investing a lot of our efforts on with uh, both U.S. government and aid organizations, as well as uh, falls on the ground in Africa and Latin America in APAC region.
0: Well, that's just great. I'd love to see uh, so much good happening, uh, both with your company and everybody on this panel. Uh, so I really want to thank... Peter, Jim, uh, Bob, Amy, and you, Ray, for your leadership and contributions. And I'm really looking forward to having you all back individually sometime soon. Uh, You just did a great job, and this was really a lot of fun. So this is our latest journey on the American Blue Economy podcast, and we explored the complex and compelling issue of climate change and some of its implications on the American Blue Economy. I want to thank our sponsors at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. And I ask you to join us for our November episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we focus on coastal resilience, very much related to today's topic. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.